He was a seasoned filmmaker, a veteran of the Sundance Film Festival, a collaborator of Wes Anderson, a chronicler of Gen X angst and ennui. His name? Noah Baumbach. She was the newest thing in indie film. Actress, writer, co-director, she could do it all, and all she needed was her big break. Her name? Greta Gerwig. It was the collaboration for the ages. Frances Ha is co-written by Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach, with Baumbach directing Gerwig in the starring role. Frances Ha became an instant classic in the realms of the indie film world. It's about Frances, who is a 27-year-old woman trying to make her way in New York City. By day a struggling dancer, Frances is flung from living situation to living situation after her best friend Sophie ditches her to live in the pricey Tribeca neighborhood. In the process of slowly drifting from her platonic lesbian life partner Sophie, Frances learns to love herself and find her groove. Shot in black and white on digital camcorder, the film's lo-fi tech renders a romantic and evocative portrait of a woman figuring things out, one drunken party at a time. Frances Ha confirmed Noah Baumbach's place in the film canon and was a remarkable debut of the multi-talented Greta Gerwig, who would go on to direct critically acclaimed darlings like Lady Bird and Little Women. Witty, clever, and amusing every minute of the way, Frances Ha is a thing of beauty. <laughs> Welcome to our Francis <laughs> episode. Oh my God. <laughs> How are those levels? <laughs> you blew my ear out. And this is the first time that uh, you and I are in the same room in five months. Yeah. Ryan and I have joined our pods. And so we're our actually recording in the same pods. space. It's Yay. so weird looking at your weird face. It's weird having <laughs> your voice in this space in front uh-huh. of me. And then also in your ears. That you're not on my Skype screen. It's so good that, you know, we can say that, uh, you know, I love you right here, right in you know, person in person not while i'm in france and <laughs> i have to pretend like um, i'm you know mr call yeah oh sorry hmm. um we watched francis ha francis if you couldn't <laughs> tell <laughs> francis halliday uh who is francis ha uh is the main character can you tell me whether this was a rom-com or not just right up front so as I was starting the movie, I was like, ooh, we might have already been stretching this as a rom-com. <laughs> I, Robin, I tell, I told Robin what we were doing this week and she was like, this, is, that a, is that a rom-com? <laughs> I don't think it's a rom-com. So it is a rom-com in the way that I Love You Man is a rom-com. Right. It's, um, it's a romantic friendship. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I was reading an essay on the Criterion website, and it's like, it's also a romance between Frances and herself. It is. Like, because at the, spoiler alert, I guess, but at the end of the movie, the entire arc that Frances takes is that, like, one of commitment, but committing to herself, and uh, more committing to finding something that she wants to commit to mm-hmm. in a in a weird way. And, and we'll we'll get to that, but it, it is a romantic film even though it's intellectual yeah but it also makes fun of intellectuals it really yeah it does it's it's self-aware enough which you know sometimes gets on my nerves and sometimes is 
great because Noah Baumbach is a good writer. Yeah. Um, and he co-wrote this with Greta Gerwig, right? Mm-hmm. Um, starring Greta Gerwig and directed by Noah Baumbach, who also did fun films like Kicking and Screaming, which we also watched together. Did um, we? Yeah. Oh, okay. You, I, you made me watch it. Oh, I did? Yeah. I was very underwhelmed by it, weren't you? Yeah. I mean, I, I think we also watched it right when we got out of college. And that mm-hmm. movie is kind of mocking the idea of thinking that you'll do something and be great and be friends with people right out of college that you were friends with anyway. Right. And it's a, kind of a disillusionment film. And I don't think you and I were in the mood to be disillusioned about our dreams. Yeah. Um, well, let's let me give a like a history of the filmmakers and like where they're where this movie came at what you know the cinematic moment and who were behind the scenes let's talk about noah bombach a little mm-hmm. bit and let's talk about greta gerwig so noah bombach started making movies in the 90s and he was part of the american independent film scene which the same generation of like kevin smith and clerks richard linklater richard linklater um and i felt like francis ha had a lot of elements that were like before sunrise yeah very much it, it felt like if you combined before sunrise with Fellini <laughs> and and like all the French New Wave directors. Yeah. 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 So Noah Baumbach was just one of those lucky filmmakers who just got to make a bunch of indie films in the 90s. And he, his first one was Kicking and Screaming, which did well at Sundance. And yeah, like Kelly and I just said, it's, you know, for us 20 years later, it's like, it's fine. It's nothing special. It's not a it's not a great comedy but no but it has its moments for sure and you can see that this person is a talented filmmaker yeah um but he he made other you know critically acclaimed films like the squid and the whale Mm -hmm. which was which was a big deal but then he made some other just smaller indie films but always had celebrities in them so he always got produced and and he's like i i i think noah bombach's career is really interesting to me because he he has done his own projects quite a bit but he's also like i think he's he's still working for a living because he wrote madagascar 3 oh he did yeah so that's weird so it's it's when they go to europe and i i I don't know if he wrote the whole thing or he was brought on to doctor or something but uh, it just it goes to show you that like a lot of filmmakers who are really good filmmakers um like you you need hits in order to basically pick your projects all the time and otherwise you're just you're always working yeah i'm looking up his uh imdb that's right he collaborated with wes anderson on life aquatic and fantastic mr fox fantastic mr fox Mm -hmm. what do you mean that's my trademark and the thing about his other the films that he's been behind they're usually pretty bitter movies Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just so strange that he worked on a kid's comedy and it's just like the the bitter guy, the, the, the pessimistic bitter guy. Yeah. Well, he's a, um, he, he is like, his characters are always so kind of disillusioned yet finding themselves at the end. Like if you think about fantastic Mr. Fox or life aquatic or Francis Ha, it's, it's all of these stories about people having like ideals about, how their life is going to go or how a mission is going to go or like wanting to recapture something of their past or hold on to their past, but needing to move on to their future. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think most of his films end hopefully, even though they're all kind of cynical throughout. Right. But I think uh, another critic pointed this out that Greta Gerwig with a movie like Francis Ha 
gives it way more levity and way more optimism that he had been missing. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, I, and so let's segue into talking about Greta Gerwig, who besides writing this has, and being an actor in her own right, also did Lady Bird, which you just purchased on Blu-ray <laughs> right before we started this. Five bucks. Five bucks, baby. There is no role of the Tempest. It is the titular role. No, it's a made up thing. So we all can participate. You can't do anything unless you're the center of attention, can you? Yeah, well, you know your mom's tits, they're fake, totally fake. She made one bad decision at 19. Two bad decisions. She, you know, was nominated for Best Picture for that. And then she also was nominated for Best Picture for Little Women. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah. But her origins were in the mumblecore movement. So that was what indie movies were. Well, that I mean, Noah Baumbach is kind of he he created a space for mumblecore right 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 so that in the 90s filmmakers could make really cheap productions and have you know really interesting stories but in the aughts the new generation were the duplass brothers um with movies like um what is that the puffy chair or the comfy chair or something like that which played at sundance and i think it was shot on like dv tape like it was really cheap production but uh, played Sundance, did really well, and kind of made way for people like Joe Swanberg, who made really low-budget films, but they're called mumblecore because it's just actors sitting around and just kind of mumbling to each other. Yeah, which, if you have a really good script, it can be interesting and entertaining, but if you have a mediocre script, it is really boring. Yeah, so Greta Gerwig, for about 10 years, just were making, she was making um, mumblecore movies where she was either the star or a co-star or a co-writer or a co-director um, and it had its audience but 2012 when Francis Haw came out that was when she kind of came into the mainstream indie movement and <laughs> they kind of have an opposite like relationship as Owen Wilson and Wes Anderson yeah where like Owen Wilson kind of brought like a, a heart to Wes Anderson's writing right uh, but then they like slowly stopped writing together yeah. whereas uh, Greta Gerwig coming in and like infusing a little bit of life into Bombach mm-hmm. was pretty cool that's very apt my friend <laughs> because i was if you look at wes anderson's first couple of films those are co-written by owen wilson and rushmore bottle rocket have this sweetness to it and this kind of levity to it and then and my, royal tenenbaums yeah but life aquatic and fantastic mr fox feels a little dour in yeah. comparison. Let's just see if you can get one of these dolphins to swim under the hull and give us a look. Nah, either they can't hear us or they don't understand. Son of a bitch, I'm sick of these dolphins. Like, the even the filmmaking of those are extremely intellectual the characters are all very intellectual and they don't like there is something akin to wes anderson in the filmmaking of francis ha Mm -hmm. where um you have these characters and i was really trying to pin it down where francis's best friend sophie is somebody that we get like right from the beginning they're best friends and they are as close as two people can be we robin and i recently listened to s town or shit town as um some people like to call it there was this quote in it where he said that intimacy is the lack of fear of being and i'm butchering this but it's the lack of fear of being judged for your words or your deeds by another person and i felt that 
Sophie and Francis were extremely intimate with each other, but they weren't, they were intimate in an intellectual way, Mm -hmm. but at least in the filmmaking, there was a huge lack of vulnerability and a very heightened sense of pride, I guess, between those two characters or between all characters where it's very Wes Anderson-y, Bombaki kind of style where these characters relate to each other and are obviously really close, but their feelings aren't on their sleeves or they don't have a lot of feelings that get high or low. And almost at every point in time where you think people are going to have a lot of feelings, it's subverted by just like somebody walking out the door or somebody exiting a moment <laughs> or somebody saying, sit down, I'm going to leave. Yeah. And yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting way of filmmaking. Well, like if you take Kylo Ren, yeah, the opposite of Kylo Ren. <laughs> I just love that Adam Driver's in here. And I remember when he was cast in The Force Awakens and I was like, the goofy dude from Francis Ha? Well, yeah, because I'd also seen him in other New York stuff like Girls. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, he's like, he's the bad guy? <laughs> which is great. Like, that guy's got range, right? Yeah. Um, and I haven't actually seen Greta Gerwig in anything else. So I don't know what to like how to judge her against her own roles but she's really great in this this is probably like one of the best wow is she this person like she just is yeah the way that hugh grant is in Notting hill it's just kind of like i don't know who else could play this part william 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 thacker if there were horses in it would you be riding them or would you be getting a, a stunt horse double man thing it's just like, he's just perfect. And just Greta Gerwig as this Francis Hopper is perfect. Check off our Hugh Grant mention for the episode. Thanks, Hugh. <laughs> yeah. Um, Greta Gerwig, Adam Driver, and the other actors in this movie is uh, Sophie's played by person that I don't remember the name of, but she is the daughter of Trudy Styler and Sting. <laughs> Nice. So uh, I think that's interesting. And the other girl, that the other dancer, the kind of jerk dancer. That yeah, she, who is she? That's I, Mammy Gummer. That's Meryl Streep's daughter. That's right. I, I was like trying to pin her down the whole time. I'm like, I know I've seen you in something. I just can't think of what it is. Uh, like, okay, let's let's talk about the story of this film. Okay. Um, Ryan, what's the story? So here we go. Tell me a story, Turk. Let me tell you a story about love, D'Artagnan. I ask you about love probably quote me a sonnet. I'm not much more than an interpreter and not very good at telling stories. That's the end. What do you mean that's the end? That's not. It's the beginning of something interesting. Listen, that's the end of that saga. The end. You got Frances Ha. Okay. Well, also her name is actually Frances Halliday and I just love the ending of this movie. Yeah, it's almost like a joke. Yeah. Right? Uh-huh. Um, so she's a late 20-something living in New York City Um, she's a dancer, but she's not that good of a dancer. And she's trying to, she's trying to make it, but in a millennial kind of slacker kind of way where almost like a a Gen X-y kind of way. Yeah. Yeah. She's first, like she's first generation millennial though. Right. Like she's, well, she's 10 years older than us. Yeah, like that's the beginning of millennial. No. We're late millennials. No, no. Millennial starts like 1983, 84. Yeah, so she was born right She's 27 in this movie, and this movie came out. 2012. 2012. She was born according to 
IMDB in 1983. Okay, so she's right on the edge. That's what I mean. Okay. She's the very beginning of millennials. Okay. Um, and there's this, so like, she's a new generation slacker, right? <laughs> yeah, sure. Where she's, she loves what she does, but she, she more loves the idea of becoming a dancer on the main stage. But we, at least what we're shown in this movie, she doesn't really try. Yeah. Like she's not dedicated. Yeah. And that's what I mean is that. This is a very millennial thing. And I think Noah Baumbach, as a true blue Gen Xer, recognizes it. He's like, you guys are just like us. You like, but you're different in your ways about it. At least Gen X slackers were upfront about they didn't, they were apathetic towards what kind of life they wanted to have. But millennials are posers. (laughs) Ouch. Calling us out. We are. Because... It does such a good job, and we'll get back into the plot in a second, but um, the characters in this movie are all posers. They're all posers. Very much so. Yeah. Um, well, I, I think it's more so than calling out millennials. I think it's calling out 20-somethings. Yeah, but I think there is that generational difference where someone like Ethan Hawke in Before Sunrise, it's like, what do you want to be? He's like... I don't know, maybe a writer or something, I guess. Well, he's like, I have this idea for a film thing, and it's like this. I think it's very equivocal. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because... yeah, 20-something... Because Joe... Oh, fucking... Okay, so Joe from... I'm trying to think of his name right now. Um, He's in Marvelous Miss Maisel. He's uh, Joe Maisel. Oh, watch it. I'm sorry. You haven't watched Marvelous Miss Maisel? What are you doing with your life? I've got a baby. this is a perfect time to watch it. It's really good. I have a baby. Anyway, he's he's in um, Marvelous Miss Maisel. He's Ben, or Benji, uh, oh, her other oh, roommate, other oh, than Adam oh. Driver. Yeah, he's like, I'm working on this script. I come home on page 68. <laughs> and it turns out he's writing a spec script for Gremlins 3. Yeah, which is never getting made. <laughs> and he's writing stuff. He's writing sketches for SNL. It's like, come on, dude. Yeah, that's never going to happen. No, 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 no. Total poser. And the thing is, Kelly, you and I were like that. When we were living together in downtown Portland, we, that was okay. Us. We were, but not to such a heightened extent. Uh, we no, because we had goals and aspirations, and they were super lofty and unreasonable for sure. But we also well, we had a, went out and did stuff. Yeah, we were still making things. Yeah, yeah. But we still had the lofty ambitions of like, well, I'm just going to write the script and uh, I'm going to sell it, and you know, <laughs> it's going to go great. And here we are. Years later. <laughs> and Hey, I did just get a script into a festival for, for the first hey, fucking time in my life. But I'm also 33, so. <laughs> I think um, I think millennials are going to have the big chill moment where boomers in the 70s were like, we're going to have this utopia, man. But in the 80s, they're like, shit, I got to get a job. <laughs> uh, I think millennials in the 30s are kind of like, yeah, we need to work. <laughs> we need to like you know, get stuff done. Well, and okay. So we basically what happens in this movie, cause I really want to touch on that. This movie is, I don't think it's so cynical that it's saying you just got to work and you just have to, I don't think it's a boomer realization where it's like, you know what? You just have to commit to a cubicle 40 right. hour a week job. And then, you know, that's life yeah. from now on. I think it's much more hopeful than that. Yeah. But so Francis basically, so, ha- she, okay, she has this life with Sophie. Uh-huh. I got to get back in the plot. She has this life with Sophie. And I, this is why I think it's a romantic comedy, because the first act is about saying, look at this relationship these two people have. They're roommates. They're best friends. 
they they've had three Christmases together. <laughs> they've gone to each other's house for Christmas. They get each other. Yeah, and and they're very like their dialogue together is very true to life. Mm-hmm. Um, like uh, even down to the like the train scene where they're like riding the train together and she's yeah. just like just put your hand in the air and it'll like the blood will rush from it and she's like it feels like i'm asking a question <laughs> she's so good just greta gerwig has perfect delivery mm-hmm. and perfect chemistry as herself yes that's the thing she has chemistry for herself because all of her a lot of her dialogue are monologues yes where she's just ranting and you're just watching her, you're like keep going <laughs> keep going keep talking no one interrupt her no one interrupt her i just want her to keep saying things and and most of the dialogue written for this movie was pretty good i i really liked it but every once in a while there was a line that i was that like these actors in this movie are all fantastic and they're all pulling off the lines that don't work because there were there were many moments in this movie where i was like that's such an awkward line to have to say out loud i was like okay well you know you guys had an idea for this and this actor is pulling it off but it's not the best writing right mm-hmm. here and that's fine because overall it was really good basically what happens is sophie moves on with her life and she she moves into she wants to move into this new place in a neighborhood she's always wanted to move into uh tribeca yeah which again millennial poserdom Right. Um, because you and I also had that same thing where we're like, man, wouldn't it be cool if we could move into the Pearl District? Don't you think Noah Bombach was like, if I get Tribeca's like, name in here, maybe <laughs> maybe it'll get into the festival? <laughs> He'd been in those festivals before. He didn't I know, to. I know. Um, but that's like kind of the equivalency of living in Portland is like living in a place like the Pearl District had just kind of this like status. Uh, and yeah, it, but it's, it's a lifestyle. Su- hey, no offense thing. if you live in the Pearl, but it's a sucky status because <laughs> it's way too expensive for its own good. But that's kind of what the movie I feel was saying about Tribeca, where it's just like, what what's the point of moving to Tribeca? We can just live with each other where we are now. And like Francis has got a good point. She's like, what are you actually getting out of moving to Tribeca? She's just always wanted to live on that street. Yeah. Right. But I mean, I, I think the equivalent is like Alberta for Portland because the Pearl is like Manhattan. Yeah. 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 Um, but so she she has to what what. This movie is broken up into chapters based on where Greta Gerwig moves, which mm-hmm. is so a millennial's 20s. Yeah. Like we, I lived in six different places in my 20s yeah. after moving to Portland. Yeah. And it was just like, oh, well, our lease was coming up here and this person, like you got married, right? So I had to move across the street to a new apartment. Yeah. And then I got kicked out of that one for doing airbnb when i wasn't supposed to be doing airbnb and then i moved into a couple friends house or with a couple friends up the hill but then they sold that house so i had to move over to the east that side. was such a cool house it was such a cool house kaya dara Woo! Um, but kaya and dara were my um Levin Le- benji. Levin benji yeah and then i was on the east side for a bit and then robin and i moved in together and we finally like settle in this house in the or the this apartment in northwest but it's it was just all over the place and so seeing that in this film was super relatable yeah um because if you don't have a good consistent income and you can't save up enough money for a house then you're just always renting and you're moving like back to your parents house or in with a friend so after sophie moves out they kind of have this I don't know. It's not a breakup, but they definitely just drift apart. This relationship just kind of starts to unspindle. Uh, it kind of just f- 
fizzles because they don't have that proximity to each other anymore. And the the culmination is one where she is going to why 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 do they have their fight again? Um well they fight well they have a fight on the subway because she tells her she's moving out. Well no they don't have a fight there though. They kind of have a tiff. Yeah, but the main fight comes because um Sophie is dating this new guy and this new or she's not dating this new guy. She's been dating this guy for a while, but Francis doesn't want to accept that Sophie is in love with him. And so Sophie gets really mad and like it's oh, like, the fight at the bar. At the bar, yeah. And then they're going to like the Galapagos or something the next <laughs> yeah. day. And, and and she's just jealous. She is. It, I mean it's 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 just jealousy over the fact and it's not even it's it's like being hurt because you're not the person in somebody's life that they're telling everything to like Francis is finding out things about Sophie's life later and later Mm -hmm. or through other people throughout the course of this. And it's, it's just a tragedy where you see her like holding less and less of this rope. That is the cliff that is Sophie. And she's like just about to fall off this rope when like she's, she's hearing about Sophie's life through like, a sixth party. Yeah, basically. which is shitty. Yeah. It's really shitty. Mm-hmm. I was lying. I don't love Patch. I do love him. Since when? When did this happen? It's been happening. That's fucking bullshit. Come on, Sophie. No, you're bullshit. And you're making me feel really bad right now. I want to love him if you love him, but you don't love him. I do. Sophie, I fucking held your head while you cried. I bought special milk for you. I know where you hide your pills. Don't treat me like a three-hour brunch friend. All right, I'm not talking to you while you're like that. It's, it's really relatable, too, because, like, we would get into this territory a little where I was single, but you were dating someone, and I would just be kind of frustrated because it's just like I didn't really have any other friends. So when you were out <laughs> with your girlfriend, I was like, well, I guess I'm going to go to do nothing. <laughs> like, this is dumb. Yeah, well, I mean, it was the same thing when you were dating Sarah <laughs> and you were gone all the time. Yeah. But, I mean, that's just kind of what happens when people find a place that they want to commit to. And and it's like when somebody starts a new job and they're super, super busy and you're like, I haven't seen you in forever. And finding a way to find some equilibrium, I feel like, is what this movie is is saying yeah um and so basically what happens is francis doesn't she's not getting enough work she's she's can't really afford to live with lev and benji or maybe she could but there's an insecurity that she knew that she couldn't you know pay her way and for living in their living room right and and this is a it's it's kind of amazing this movie tackles this without getting too deep into it but benji's like you're not poor and she's like if you were as poor as me you'd feel poor (laughs) and he's like that's offensive to poor people but it's true there's like this sliding scale especially in your 20s where i had friends who were being like taken care of by their parents Mm -hmm. and they were just like it's okay come out and i'm like i can't and they're just like well it's just one drink it's fine i'm like no you don't understand i don't have enough money to pay rent this month and they're like it's fine it's like shut up you're so rich yeah i was a weird case that sometimes my parents would help me out other times i'd be a cheapskate because Mm. i wouldn't be taking their money or i i can't remember like they would help me out with rent and then but I didn't have a lot of, you know, spending money. So I was kind of both kids at the same time where it's like I wasn't worried about rent, but I was also not going and doing anything. Sure. Uh-huh. <laughs> so 
it was kind of a weird balance. But I remember when we first moved to Portland and how like ah freaky it was that we were like on food stamps and like we could barely afford the place that we had and we it was were worried rough. about getting a job. Well, I remember I remember so we moved in in June and then July came around and mid July it was like we both had 50 something dollars in our bank account and we're like how are we like I hope our checks come in so that we can pay our rent this month. I know it was like one of those times where I came home and I got tips from working in the box office and so I had like I got like eight bucks that day and I was like I guess I'm gonna go to the store and buy some bread <laughs> it's like since when am i starring in this russian novel from the 19th century <laughs> and i mean i've been to that point a couple different times in my 20s where i've just had less money because either like i lost a job or i just came off of a film project where like i made something but i didn't make any money you know yeah. and and it wasn't in like gosh it was even a couple years ago that i I even got almost that low again. Mm -hmm. And um, this movie is all about saying like your 20s is kind of about that. Yeah. Where. uh, okay, so the guy Sophie dates. What's his name? Patchy. Patches. Patchy. Uh, Patchy. Yeah. Patch. His name's Patch. Yeah. Um, He's in like he's a high flying, really rich investment banker. Like you you get a glimpse into Sophie's house when they have a phone conversation once. And it's just like. She has a nice new iMac and like a billion books in the background. Yeah. And she like her life compared to Francis's is it's it's a stark difference. And Patch is somebody who like is pretty basic. He has like he wears like a hat that just, you know, it's it's like a Yellowstone hat. And yeah. he, he seems like a nice guy and all. But he also is somebody who is committed to working in money. Yeah. And so he's just like a guy who's has money and um francis just i think part of her jealousy comes from the fact that he is so different from her and he comes back from the bathroom he says sorry i have to take a leak and since (laughs) since they're so different she just doesn't understand why sophie could be with someone who is so different from her yeah it's almost an insult yeah because francis would never date someone like patchy no so why would sophie right um, and eventually what happens is after Francis goes through all of this kind of disillusionment, um, she she's offered this job at the dance company that she's been trying to become a regular dancer at instead of an apprentice. Mm-hmm. And she she just can't like and, and she finds this out through the director basically being like, hey, do you want to take this job as an like an office assist, like a front desk person yeah it's an admin job yeah and it's just crushing and at first her pride is like no thanks i don't want that obviously i'm gonna be a dancer yeah but it's said with such little conviction yeah and just like a huge wall of like a facade it's very poser ish yeah um but it, it just the millennials have this like i totally have this like um you style yourself as something and it's like that doesn't work in my self-actualization image of I'm a dancer person so being an admin would be confessing that I'm not a dancer person and so that goes against my identity or what I want my identity to be and and we're not trying to paint like uh, you know we're both millennials and we are not trying to paint all millennials as being the the same kind of person yeah but it's something I related to Sure, me too, because there would be times where I was working as a server because I worked uh, in the food service industry since moving to Portland, basically. And people would be like, 
oh, so how long have you been working here? And I'd be like, this. And they're like, do you do anything else? And I felt like such a poser saying, oh, I'm a filmmaker. Yeah. Because why would I be working in this this <laughs> restaurant or yeah. something like that? And I, I feel like there's, there's an awful insecurity in styling yourself something and being so close to being that thing. Because it's true, I was making films, but it wasn't my main source of income. And right. we kind of define de facto in living in a capitalist society we define ourselves by the job we do that provides us a living right so like which is a good segue to when francis like what do you do yeah uh, (laughs) i don't know it's just something stupid people say (laughs) um and that whole dinner party she's like at one point in time she goes to a dinner party with uh meryl streep's daughter what uh what's mammy gummer mammy gummer a great name (laughs) And um, she's at this dinner party with a bunch of super successful, rich New Yorkers. But definitely older. Yeah, but only by like... Several f- years. Five to ten years yeah. older. Um, and and she, she doesn't know how to relate to these people. Yeah. And they don't really know how to take Francis. Because yeah. Francis is kind of shoots from the hip and just says what's on her mind. But she's also kind of insecure being around all these like people who have their shit together a little bit more than her and not that her life is bad but she's just kind of lost Mm -hmm. um and uh, it's 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 never more okay and this is where like at this point in time the movie really starts taking hard hits at the romantic comedy genre Mm. because um Basically, this film has a whole bunch of subplots that should be in a romantic comedy or maybe an entire romantic comedy is about or a bunch of romantic comedy moments in sitcoms. Like when she moves in with Benji and Lev, right? Yeah. She should end up dating one of them. Yeah. Like there's a chemistry between her and Benji. Yeah. Where there is none between her and Lev, even though they go out on a date first. Yeah. And um like Benji always is like, you know what, maybe we'll end up married. Um, and they are always like undateable. And so the romantic comedy version of this is they're saying they don't, aren't going to date the whole time. And then at the end, they're like, actually, we should date. Um, and then at one point, she's at this dinner party, like um, we were talking about before with all these super successful people. And one of them is like, hey, if you ever want like to hang out at our apartment. By the way, people are so freaking rich in this movie. Yeah. They're like, if you want to hang out in our apartment in Paris, like, just let me know. And at the end of the dinner party, Francis is like, you know, actually I am going to Paris next weekend, which she's just decided at that dinner party. And it's a brilliant moment because she basically calls their bluff. Where yeah. It's like, uh-huh. cause he was just being nice. Yeah. And if you're going to be nice and he, to his credit, he, he follows through, he follows through, but he's just like, uh, Oh, and it's just kind of like there's this, I don't know, like good citizen ideal where we're like, yeah, if you're going to if you're going to say stuff like that, you got to put up like you got to actually like fall through. And he does. But it's it's one of those like poetic justice kind of moments. Right. And that's that's I feel like the difference between these these exers who have money and this Francis who does not Mm -hmm. uh, where she's like, no you're going to say something and I'm going to hold you to that. Mm -hmm. Like she, I think even though she's a poser in one respect, um, and I I don't want it to be such a pejorative, but she, she aspires to be something that she isn't fully yet. 
Um, you know, and I would say she's the least poser of the millennials in this movie. Sure. She styles herself a dancer, but people like... And she does dance is yeah, the thing. Yeah, yeah. And that's, you know, the movie does end with her, like, choreographing her own company. Yeah, but she finds the thing that she's good at. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway, and we'll get there. But she she kind of calls this politeness out and is saying, no, let's be real about this. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm, I am fine being looked at as rude if you're fine not. So then she goes to Paris and this is that other like romantic comedy thing. She's supposed to go to Paris. She's supposed to meet up with these people. And as we find out later on, she keeps trying to hook up with her friend who's in Paris and just like have dinner with her and her husband. And she has this really anticlimactic journey to Paris that is just two days long. She sleeps through most of it because she's <laughs> jet, lagged. jet lagged. And then she does nothing while she's there and she goes home. And then as she's traveling back from the airport to her apartment, <laughs> she gets a voice message from her friend and she's just like, oh, I'd love for you to come <sighs> and meet this guy who just broke up with somebody. <sighs> and it's like literally the like a plot that Noah Baumbach didn't write into yeah. a voicemail. But it's really narratively satisfying it is like the whole movie is anticlimactic because it's a it's heightened realism it just feels so good being anticlimactic and i'm gonna just i feel like we should have an audio cue for this i'm like i'm gonna bring in some star wars for you guys because that's my other obsession Take a movie that is very controversial in the Star Wars fandom, which is The Last Jedi, which is uh, written and directed by Ryan Johnson, who did Knives Out, which is a great movie. But uh, The Last Jedi is kind of a controversial movie because a lot of it is anticlimactic, mm. that you have the final battle of, of the movie, and I'm sorry, I'm going to spoil the movie a little bit. That's but, fine. Everybody's seen it. <laughs> uh, it's about, like, you have all these big AT-AT walkers, and it feels like the Empire Strikes Back, and it's like, yeah, big battle! And it ends with Rose Tico literally derailing the battle and taking Finn away from doing this big hero moment and saying, no, we're not going to fight, we're just going to run. <laughs> and that's my really mean way of uh, summing up what she says. That's how we're going to win. Not fighting what we hate. Saving what we love. And the whole thing is just not a battle. It's an anti-battle. Mm-hmm. Um, and the lightsaber battle between Luke Skywalker and Kylo Ren is he's not really there. It looks like he's there. So they don't actually have a lightsaber duel. It's this fake duel. Sure. And it's really dissatisfying. Where it's, I, So I, I disagree with you, but that's fine. But you can understand objectively what I'm getting at. Yeah, sure. It, it is. Um, there is a lack of conclusion to this battle i it's a trick though so i i still felt Would, satisfied yeah yeah by it. but wouldn't you call it just looking at it is anticlimactic would you still use the word sure sure yeah yeah where i get where you're going for you it worked for me it didn't work sure. um but in francis ha it works so well and i'm kind of confused why it works well in francis ha and not for the last Jedi. where i was just kind of like left wanting i know why okay i thought a lot about this um francis ha is a movie that down to its very bones wants you to think that the world is less dramatic than it actually is because francis like like i was saying if we were writing this movie into a romantic comedy um she would be pursuing dance and she would 
be pursuing it harder and harder and harder, like a save the last dance or something. Mm -hmm. And she'd be getting better and better at dancing. And then she'd make the troop in the end, right? Mm -hmm. This is our hero's journey. This isn't a hero's journey. This is a human's journey. Mm -hmm. And so something like Star Wars, we expect the hero's journey, not only because, you know, George Lucas loves the hero's journey, blah, 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 but because the... We're living in a fantastical world where anything is possible, whereas this movie lives in the real world where real things are possible. Mm-hmm. Like, just even think about when she's about to leave this party with all these rich people, her, her dance friend comes up to her and she's like, where do you think you're going? And at first <laughs> you think she's mad about something and she's like, oh, I'm just... And she's like, I don't care. I was just wondering. <laughs> like everything that you think is going to be dramatic or hopeful or um, just like blow up in somebody's face it's just a lot less dramatic than that yeah which isn't how real life feels in those moments it's how it looks intellectually and so i think this movie's intellectualism finds a humanism and then like kind of meets in the middle but there is growth and there is development in spite of so much anti-climactic sequencing yes yeah she like what we're witness to are these moments that get her to the resolution, which is she takes the admin job and she choreographs and she starts trying different things and new things. And she the grows as a person. Yeah. The movie ends with this like new Francis that's balanced, that is accepting the responsibility of living in New York. She's like, you got to have to sh- you gotta have to have a shitty day job and. Yeah, At least if you work. want to pay for like $1,200 for living in a living room. Yeah, and um, you can still do the things that you love. It's just not going to be as romantic as you've right. always imagined it to be. And like this... this movie is kind of a hopeful compromise at the end mm-hmm. where she talks about maybe I'll just move to Washington Heights at the beginning, which is, you know, just it's a cheaper neighborhood. It's a little further out. It's, you know, it, it is what it is. It's like any neighborhood that's on the edge of a city that isn't where you want to be. It's not like walking distance to the nicest supermarket or anything. It's just kind of a neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And she moves there at the end of the movie. That's where her last address is. Mm -hmm. And um, she also, like you said, compromises by taking the job and she choreographs something that isn't like this epic dance, but it's very her. Mm -hmm. And her teacher is like, yes mm-hmm. like this is exactly what i've been talking about you have like a uniqueness to you thus you should be a choreographer and so this this commitment comes with compromises but it's still something that makes her happy and it's the same thing with sophie where she doesn't get to live with sophie they don't get to have their like lesbian relationship without the sex that they talk about earlier in the movie 24 mm-hmm. 7 like they used to she has to share her with um, Patch mm-hmm. in the same way where she's not in the dance troupe, but she gets to make dance troops happen now. Yeah. Like it's it's about saying like in order to find what you want in life, nothing's going. You're either going to have nothing and pretend that you're going towards perfection or you're going to compromise and find love in something new. Yeah. And, you know, I think part of what Francis needs to go through is letting go of her relationship with Sophie because their relationship was kind of keeping them stunted mm-hmm. and, yeah. a- and arrested. And it's arrested development. Uh, and you can't blame them. No. Like they, they each needed to move on in their own ways. And Sophie was just far more willing to do it sooner. Yeah. Um, and it's crazy. 
like she quit her job at Random House. I'm like, Random House, that's a good job. What I are you know. doing? <laughs> but she goes to Japan and, and then she gets super depressed. Yeah. Uh, and the, I'm glad you brought up Arrested Development, or maybe I did. Um, but that he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Going back to that idea of anticlimactic, I used to get frustrated watching Arrested Development because I'm like, man, these guys can never catch a break because every episode, whatever thing they're trying to do to get ahead, they're always foiled. And I always think at least Michael Bluth should not get foiled. Like sure. all the other people should be foiled, um, but at least. But he's attached to his family. I don't know what I expected. I'm rewatching it and it's totally a different show to me now because I now see it as a show about entitled white rich people. And I'm like, wait, you didn't see it as that before. <laughs> I just saw it as just kind of a silly comedy about these really selfish well, people. It's just both. Yeah. But now I see it for it's like, um, uh, whatever multi-layeredness. Yeah. Or it's social commentary of mm-hmm. like these rich white privileged people. And I, the show is so much more satisfying because I now enjoy seeing them foiled because they deserve it. <laughs> you almost hate watching it now. <laughs> but I think the show knows it. And sure. that's, yeah, yeah. there's the narrative pleasure of seeing someone like Job get foiled because he could be a toxic person. Sure. Uh, yeah. He is terrifying. And he kind of deserves it. And they all kind of deserve what's coming to them. So bring that around to, to this. Well, the, it, I, I it's not, no one in this movie is toxic, um, but there is there is the narrative pleasure of seeing them not get what they should get. Like, is it a little Schadenfreude? Uh, no, because I think Francis, we kind of need her to get foiled in order to grow. Yeah, to learn lessons. It's, I mean, it, instead of it being obstacles presented to her she is her own obstacle in Mm -hmm. this movie, which is why it's a very interior film. It's an intellectual film because it's somebody trying to overcome their own problems. Yeah. Yeah. And I think if a studio had made this film or if they were making this movie for a studio, the studio head would be like, why don't we see them? Why don't we see Francis and Benji like moving in together? Well, yeah. And there's an extreme lack of love life in, uh, at least these years of Francis's story, because mm-hmm. right at the beginning of the movie, she breaks up with somebody whose name I can't even remember, Joe, maybe. Mm-hmm. And he asked her to move in with him. And she's like, oh, no, I have to move in with Sophie, who she's tied to. Yeah. But she ends up breaking up with him just because, like, they're also just, you know, she doesn't love him, it seems. Yeah. Um, but she doesn't hook up with anybody that we know about in this film. Yeah. And there's seems- that's very odd for like a, uh, a 90s or not 90s but it feels like a 90s yeah it's very odd for a, a movie that's about somebody in their 20s who has all of these potentials mm-hmm. i guess yeah and she's definitely attracted to people she thinks love's hot and mm-hmm. um but in a conventional rom-com it would culminate with a relationship with benji yeah and it would be like ah she finally found her like purpose with this guy <laughs> Mm-hmm. But it doesn't. It's like she found her purpose for herself. Yeah. And that's and that's what's really cool about this movie. Yeah, yeah. So much healthier and so much better. And it's kind of like the ending I was wanting out of. Well, it's weird. Like 500 Days of Summer. I always carp on that. Harp? Carp? Both. <laughs> Do I fish on it? Yes. <laughs> um, 500 Days of Summer. He gets out of this, you know, codependent relationship with Summer. 
and he gets out of his funk by throwing himself into his career, which I think is not sustainable. Um, but there's something about Francis's pursuit that is sustainable because mm-hmm. I feel like it's more than just her career. It's like everything. It's a tonal shift. It's a balanced identity. Yeah, 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 yeah. The, okay, you, you brought up studios earlier and there was one moment in this movie that felt like like it almost belonged in a different film. And uh, it's it's one of her monologues. Uh, the one where she thinks she sounds stoned? Yes. Okay. So it's a really great monologue. Ryan will put it here. I want this one moment. It's it's what I want in a relationship, which might explain why I'm single now. Ha ha. <laughs> it's, um, it's kind of hard to... It's that thing... When you're with someone and you love them and they know it and they love you and you know it, but it's a party and you're both talking to other people and you're laughing and shining and you look across the room and catch each other's eyes, but, but not because you're possessive or it's precisely sexual, but because that is your person in this life. And it's funny and sad, but only because this life will end. And it's the secret world that exists right there in public, unnoticed, that no one else knows about. It's sort of like how they say that um, other dimensions exist all around us, but we don't have the ability to perceive them. That's, that's what I want out of a relationship. Or just life, I guess. Love. I sound stoned. (laughs) I'm not stoned. Nice. Nice. (laughs) And what happens is she's been at this dinner party and she's almost just been like swinging and missing with all of her conversation points with all these richer, older people. Mm -hmm. And... At one point in time, she's just sitting down with a couple of people who are talking and she has this really beautiful monologue about how all she really wants in life is to be in love with somebody and have such a steady relationship with them that they can be at a party and they can look across the room at each other and share a look and in that look know that they love each other. And it's such a, it's such a, like that that is a a moment that we all kind of long for and to write it like that is is just so good but the the way it's expressed i was almost like man meg ryan could have said this in another movie i guess so but she just has this adorable delivery that i don't think meg ryan could have nailed i don't know It, it it worked here um and it was it was all setting up that moment that she has with sophie later mm-hmm. on where it kind of shows that their relationship is healed and at has this point a balance and, and it has a balance to it but it, it almost it felt like that monologue should have been in a studio film I, and i don't dislike it here but it it was the only thing about this movie that felt very studio-esque yeah if it was in a Nora efron movie it would be a lot cleaner it would be a lot smoother and there wouldn't be any kind of like M-dashes. Well, that's all in the performance. 
Yeah. Like if Meg Ryan did it, I can just imagine her. Like she would have teared up a little at the end. Yeah, she would have been very slow, steady, and it would have been the same kind of monologue. But she would have been figuring it out as she was saying it, too. Yeah, but like in When Harry Met Sally, she's talking about um, with Joe how they never made love on the floor. They never went off to Europe. They And that monologue is very methodical. Mm -hmm. And I feel like Frances Ha is like these jagged edges, just kind of like, she's just kind of like. That's very raw without, you know, being WWE. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's basically it. That's, that's the movie. Uh, What do you think about her? She does have these moments where she's physically touched and she does the. (laughs) (laughs) I was wondering about that because I, I feel like Francis herself, um, like at first I was like, ooh, maybe she's gone through some sexual trauma of mm-hmm. some kind. Um, or maybe she's just like, that's how she communicates. She's <laughs> yeah. just very upfront and she's like, no, don't want to be touched. Don't touch me. Yeah. Um, and I think if you knew Francis, you would know when she wants to be touched and how she wants to be touched. But mm-hmm. Lev doesn't know her. He's just basically looking to hook up and she knows that and she's not looking to do that. And so yeah, that's where it ends. But they don't, it, it's not like she goes home afterwards because this movie, if like we said before, is anticlimactic. And so she just starts hanging out with Lev and Benji that night yeah. and they all hang out together and then become roommates. Yeah. It's it's a, an unlikely situation that would totally happen. Definitely. Yeah. Um, I also like her trip to um, California. Oh, trip to see her, yeah. Because Greta Gerwig loves Sacramento. Is she from Sacramento? I think so. Okay. Um, and I'm pretty sure those are her parents. Her oh, real parents. okay. I was wondering if the entire family was her actual family yeah. when we were watching. Yeah. And uh, there's something, it makes so much sense. Like, Francis Ha is a West Coaster. Oh, yeah. Very much so. There, there is a a cold like there is a cold intellectualism at certain points in, um, and we'll talk about it when we get there. But in Little Women, where it's like, wow, this feels very New York for being like Connecticut or Massachusetts back yeah. back in the day. But she brings a sense of like life and spasm and like wonder and weirdness that only Northern Californians can. Yeah. Yeah, well, let's we'll say we'll say Cascadians because yeah. we're from Portland and that yeah. that totally would make sense. Yeah, and like her boss at the dance company is very New York where she's just like laying it out straight but doing her a favor by being nice about it. And you could tell like she knows her boss knows this about Francis that there's like a sensitivity to Francis mm-hmm. that this is she's not used to the East Coast rigidness of yeah. like look, you're not in it we're done but she tries and i really like her boss because she's a very she has a new york attitude but she's gonna make the effort of being compassionate yeah and you know i being being a portlander a couple of portlanders i know a lot of people who have moved to new york from portland and have moved from new york to portland and there seems to always be kind of a uh an emotional language barrier that Mm -hmm. you have to learn when Mm -hmm. you go to those two places uh like I remember like Bill moved here from New York and he said he went into a uh, subway once the restaurant and somebody just like started talking to him and he's like, what do you want? Like, what do you, what do you want from me? Why are you trying to con me? And it was just somebody being nice. And 
I feel like Francis kind of brings that into this world. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's hard for her to communicate sometimes with people. Yeah. 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 And it's just, it's kind of a tragedy because if Francis moved to Portland, she would thrive. Oh my gosh. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe New York is the, the whetstone on which she sharpens herself into a, a more capable person. Yeah. Cause Francis had she moved, especially in 2012, this was like the era of coming to Portland to retire. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, she would have just not needed a huge amount of money for rent and she would have been happy to live on the East side and she would get all her needs met in terms of like the boho life that she would, she was wanting. And then when 2016 rolled around, she would have to move away from the East side cause it just got super expensive. Yeah. <laughs> and then she would move to the suburbs like me. Um, but yeah, this, uh, this Francis Ha character is, kind of that perfect combination of california and new york yeah yeah and uh again i think it's new york is the beacon for all posers to try it (laughs) because new york is like if you're saying i'm living in new york as a screenwriter it sounds real but it's not actually what's happening in your life well for very few people it is exactly but so many and I mean, maybe people living in New York is like, no, we're all doing it. <laughs> but it seems like a lot of people are saying, I'm going to go to New York and I'm going to I'm going to do it. It's like, mm-hmm. well, you're going to try to do it. <laughs> yeah. And you might have some success. But I also know a lot of people who have moved to New York and moved back because it's been so hard. But that the same thing is true. Like, I remember I lived in Spokane where we went to school before we moved to Portland. And I told somebody at my job that I was moving to Portland and she was like, oh, you'll be back in a couple of years. <sighs> I was like, what do you mean? And she's like, uh, it's just what I I see people move to big cities it's hard they don't make it they move back and portland's a pretty small pond compared to new york but yeah. it's a pretty big pond compared to spokane do you remember your you were in spokane a couple years after you graduated do you remember feeling like i can't stand another minute in this place <sighs> yes you know me so well <laughs> yes that is i was there for about a year and a half after oh no no just a year after i graduated yeah and it was it was getting to that point where i was like i I am in the same place I went to high school. I need to get out of here so badly. And you yeah. can you can kind of see a little bit. It's not in the text of when Francis goes back to Sacramento, but I love that sequence so much because it so felt like going home. Mm-hmm. Uh, like there's so much of this movie gets well in real life where she like doesn't go to church in New York, but she goes to church with her parents when she's home. Yeah. Uh, and, and that church is so like, so fun, hippie, like Northern you know what California it, church. You know what it is? It's a Unitarian Universalist church. Oh, nice. So it's so, like everybody's welcome It's here. very combined. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but like between those moments and like when she goes to the ATM, when she has a date earlier in the movie, <laughs> she it like does that thing. Are you sure you want to spend three extra dollars to get like, this money? I have been there so many times yeah. in my life. And this movie was just so choice like that. Yeah. Yeah. When she goes back to work at her school, mm-hmm. I, I was reminded of that when I spent um, just the summer in Spokane and I didn't go home. It was like the summer of my junior year or something like that. And I just remember I was contemplating staying in Spokane for a little bit longer and just thinking, I can't leave here. But now five years after for Francis, five years after college, it must have been, I don't know, kind of humiliating to go back. She just went back for Christmas. No, no. To college. Oh, to college. 
Yeah, um, I remember I was thinking at one point in time of going back and getting my master's there because um, I could just get a cheaper education, but a good one still. Yeah. Um, and at one point in time, like I had deferred, I had deferred um, going to Oxford for mm-hmm. a while and I was debating like, do I want to go there or do I want to go where I can get almost a free education? Mm-hmm. And and I was like tossing these back and forth. And there was there was a little like, pre-shame in leaving college going somewhere else and then going back to that same college like because francis goes back to her college not for an education but just to like act as a waiter for a while and she's planning on like taking some dance classes while she's there but she doesn't even get to do that and so it's so like she has that conversation with the girl who's just like what are you doing here if you're not a student (laughs) um and so it would be weird but I think there's it's it's something when you're lost in your life you just want something someplace comforting that can give you the the peace of mind to think about next steps. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's what she was doing there most of all. Yeah. My favorite scene in the movie is when that girl is crying in the hallway and Francis finds her and just sits down sits with down. her. She's like I'm just going to sit here. It re- reminds me so much of being an RA. Yeah. Oh man, it made me like be like and I have added a third fictional character to whom I confess my love to. Like, that's just such a lovable trait that she's just compassionate. She's like, I don't know if you need someone to talk to. I don't know if whatever you need, but I'm just going to sit here. And that's that's the uh, the other thing that's very, like, Californian, I guess, about her or West Coast. Um, she's somebody who knows when when she's not emotionally invested in something she is the perfect person to be empathetic yeah yeah um which is which is great that's what we're kind of best at yeah <laughs> we're great therapists um and i'm married to one yeah okay well ryan i think it's about time to go to the oscars <laughs> <laughs> this is a new way of me doing this no no, no. Okay. i need the big the big thingy thing okay this is Ryan and Kelly's rom-com Oscars. Yay! So, What's your Oscar? My Oscar. Um, I want it to be really unique because I've been pretty vague in the last few You haven't months. even thought about it. No, no, no. I need it to be from off the cuff. Best, best fake fight. Mm, yes throughout the movie sophie well not throughout the movie but just at the beginning sophie and francis do fake fights yeah which i love i have had friends that i love doing that with you and i even do something like mm-hmm. that every once in a while and it's just so charming yeah yeah that's very good okay i think i'm going to give this movie i i was thinking about giving it most realistic mm-hmm. but i I think uh, th- there's something about Before Sunrise that is so equal with it that I couldn't give it to this film. Mm-hmm. And so I I really want to give this movie Worst Trip. <laughs> <laughs> um, best Worst Trip. Yeah. Because, it, and this isn't me disliking it. It's just one of those perfect moments where in, in a lot of our films, we're going to run into people going on vacations. And this one is going to be the worst one of them. Yeah. For sure. Just because of its 
blase nature and i think it's so well executed i i wouldn't have changed a thing about that so i want to talk about paris just for a second real quick Mm -hmm. um because it is it does have an important bearing on the style of this film and so i think uh we talked about noah bombach um from a filmmaking standpoint and greta gerwig we also need to acknowledge the other big pillar in this movie which is the influence of the french new wave Mm -hmm. so the french new wave was um a movement in the early 60s um, by a bunch of film critics uh, spearheaded mostly by Francois Truffaut and Jean-Luc Godard. They were f- film critics and they were unhappy with the way the French film industry was going. They thought it was very boring and so they started making movies on their own and they made movies like The Foreigner Blows and Breathless um, and uh, Jules and Jim. Which... Oh, there were such Jules and Jim in this movie mm-hmm. like when her and Lev and Benji were in the apartment mm-hmm. and they just come home and they're smoking and it's yep. just like, yes. Very Jules and Jim, very Band of Outsiders, which is Godard. Um, and it was uh, it was a new wave, and it brought a breath of fresh air to world cinema. And, and not all of it's good. Let's, no, let's, there's a lot of boring. <laughs> there's a lot movies. of really bad stuff in there. But but you know, we we Kelly and I will definitely recommend go watch the Four Hundred Blows. Go yes. watch Breathless. Go, go watch, watch Jules, Jules and Jim. Very very good romantic fun movies. And if you like, go well, watch Breathless. Might not be fun. Uh, it's fun. Yeah. Okay. It's a crime movie. It's fun. Okay. Um, but Jules and Jim. Ooh, we need to add that to the list. Yeah. Um, Jules and Jim is you'll if you watch Francis Fa, Francis Ha and then watch Jules and Jim you'll see that there's this kinship between them that's very similarly styled and and you're right in France when when that there's this romance with it and I don't know if that's kind of Bombach and Gerwig just which ugh, it's hard to say together <laughs> um, it's them saying like yeah these are all great films but they're not exactly as you remember them or something like that, or not how you expect There's them to be. There's not a reality to it. Exactly. Because, th- and, and I think part of the way he does this in his filmmaking, um, Bombach in particular, is when Greta Gerwig is, or Francis is walking along in the different places in France where she's just kind of like waiting for her friend to call her back. You always see like the Eiffel Tower in the background or the mm-hmm. Champs-Élysées in the background and just all of these huge landmarks that Francis is just, doesn't Whatever. care about it's just like she's here in france she's not enjoying it she's not getting wrapped up in it she's just like kind of just existing with it yeah and it's an, it's again the anticlimacticness that i think everyone in their 20s needs to go through because when you're in college you're watching movies like these french new wave films where it's like you're gonna have this intellectually stimulating beautiful life where you'll have all these friends and relationships and life is just gonna be such a a utopia because it's so beautiful the way that they want to depict life um and then when you actually go out and do it it's not that at all it's it's not that it's boring it's just not this poetic life that you thought it was right right yeah i I feel what you're saying yes no it's this movie i i'm just coming up with a with a term i don't want it to be (laughs) anti-poetry um because poetry can be anything Mm -hmm. this lamp right here is poetry (laughs) but but there there is something i i just think it's an I want to find something that isn't a negativism to call anticlimactic, um, where maybe it's just realism. This movie is just, it's almost forcing realism in a, in almost a meta way down your throat. Yeah. It's realism, but not in a way that's like life is rough. It's not cynicism. 
Right. It bridges, but it's not cynicism. Yeah, it's a realism that's like life can be beautiful and wonderful and special, um, just not in this, um, you know, poetic French cinema way. How, how long does this movie last for, like in reality? Like how long is she? Uh, Probably f- six months because she spends time in college. No, it's more she than spends... that because is it. it? Yeah, because her and Sophie Christmas. break up. Then she moves in with for a couple months with um, with Benji and Lev, and then she has Christmas, and then it's summer. She spends the summer at yeah, this college. Yeah, so maybe a year. Maybe yeah, maybe it's about a year. Yeah, it's yeah. a very very big year. Um, but what I love about this movie is that it's 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 still like those French New Wave films because it it even uses music from those movies. Mm-hmm. So when she's going and going to the ATM, they're using the soundtrack from the Foreigner Blues. Yeah. Uh-huh. And and she's running the whole time. Yeah. Um and oh, this movie is a great running movie. Can we say? Yeah. Like when uh, Modern Love plays and she runs through the city, there's such a joy to that. And um... Also stolen from a French film. That's from a Leo's Carax film. Oh, um, really? Starring uh, Juliette Pinoche. I don't know the title off my head. Um, I'll put it in the doobly-doo. Um, but Noah Baumbach, that sequence, stolen from a French film. That, really? is, that is theft. And it's it's actually just well, a really good example so, of good artists borrow, great artists steal. So, yeah, I mean, Noah Baumbach is to the French New Wave or just French films in general as Quentin Tarantino is to, like, old black exploitation slash westerns. Precisely. Well, Um, uh, who'd you fall in love with? Frances Ha, oh my god. She's like probably my top three. I thought you were going to say the dance teacher. (laughs) She's got a realism to her now. Yeah, for me too. Frances is such a unique character. Uh, Benji is fun, but he's still such a poser right now. Uh, Although you kind of see him grow out of that just a little bit. I do like that he has to concede that he had to take a loan from his stepdad and just like... Yeah, you're a poser. You know it. You're yeah, not. Yeah. You're not. You're literally not he, earning your keep. And then he literally is like, "Son of a bitch." <laughs> um, but at the end, he's like, "Hey, you know, I'm not dating anybody. I'm undateable too." And he kind of, for the first time, shows a little vulnerability. Yeah. And so everybody grows up a little bit in this film. But I'm gonna have to say, Frances Ha. She's just so awesome. She runs through the streets. I've ran through the streets listening to Modern Love. It was right after you and I saw this movie in theaters mm-hmm. for the first time together, and I like. A couple weeks later, I just had to get from point A to point B in the city, and I just turned on Modern Love and listened to it in my headphones, and it was amazing. I highly recommend anybody do it. But Francis Ha, it's double jeopardy. Boom. I also want to make one last filmmaking note. This, for me, is like Before Sunrise, where the filmmaking is really, really interesting. But another thing that we should note is that in the same way the French New Wave happened because of technology, this is an important film because of technology because it was shot on a Canon. Oh, it's black and white. We, we haven't even recognized that yet. Yeah. yeah. And it was shot on a 5D Mark II. So it's just oh, a, really? Yeah. Wow. I... I that that's one of the like cameras that I learned on. You would never guess it. Mm-hmm. So I they they must have shot in black and white because they were shooting on the Canon. Yeah, yeah. Because the color just wouldn't yeah. look very nice. But it would they could be do fine. Black and white. It'd be fine for television. But yeah. yeah, yeah. And so part of the reason like the French New Wave had this like um, 
energy to it is because in the 50s when they were making films, cameras were ginormous and so they'd have to be on tripods and you couldn't really move them. But in the 60s, they developed cameras so that they could be portable and you could help hold them by hand and you can just kind of move around a room and shoot on location and do whatever you want. This is actually the same thing of independent movie in the 2010s is that people could just shoot on these camcorders that these DSLRs that you could just go and you know get one from Best Buy for like 500 bucks. Um, and you no, could that sh- one was 1500 Oh, yeah. At, but, at least, yeah. but other indie films were being made on even less sure. on cheaper cameras. Sure, sure, sure. And it it's, was... It's the, kind of the tangerine of its day. Yeah, yeah. And so you could just... They just went on and shot it. And so I think this movie, because they shot on a 5D Mark II, probably had one of the lowest production... Has to be the lowest production budget of his career. Sure. Yeah. I mean, perhaps. And especially because the lighting... like. Um, when Sophie's sitting at her desk, both when she writes the letter after she has that drunken night with um, mm-hmm. with Francis and the time when they're having that conversation when Francis is in France, um, which is fun, um, she is lit so impeccably. Mm-hmm. Like the lighting in this movie is so beautiful, not only because it's in black and white, but it's just it feels like they're using a lot of natural light. Mm-hmm. And I have seen very few movies that were lit with natural light in black and white. Yeah. Like most of them are studio films because they were made by studios back in the day or they're stylized like Sin City or something like that. Yeah. And you can do a like I am imagine when they're in Paris, they probably didn't have much of a presence as a crew that they just probably know it just had his camera. They had some, I don't know, bounce cards and yeah. they just kind of went and out and did it. Mm-hmm. And it just kind of has this. I don't know. I think it adds to this kind of realistic. This is how it was feel. Yeah. Yeah. And OK, so um, Noah. And since we're talking about who we'd fall in love with, um, Noah and Greta are married. They're lovers. We are lovers. Oh, that word bums me out unless it's between the words meat and pizza. I don't know if they're married or not, but they definitely have a kid together. Cool. It's fun when filmmakers get together. Yeah. Um, Robin, that was one of the things when Robin and I got together. It was so nice to have somebody who understood that sometimes like shoot days turn from 10 hour days to 16 or 18 hour days. Mm-hmm. And you just call and be like, hey, um, it's going to suck. I'm going to be home late. And they'll be like, I'm so sorry. I love you. <laughs> well, you know, and I, I just really want to know. I want to hear from the horse's mouth. Is this a Noah Baumbach film or is it a Greta Gerwig film? No, be- it's no, no, no. It's both. That's the thing. But yeah. I, I don't. Does she get? credit as co-writer and co-director or is it just directed by noah no directed by noah co-written by greta see i I don't know it just kind of feels i mean i guess you could call it just directed by noah but it just feels from i don't from an authorship point of view it just feels like a greta gerwig movie i think that's because she helped write it or was a co-writer um i think just because like would you say that i directed emily no, but you pro- <laughs> you produced it in the same way that Steven Spielberg produced Back to the Future. It's like, that feels very Spielberg. Well, sure. it was directed by Robert Zemeckis, but still it's a Spielberg movie, right? It's like, eh, eh. Yeah, I, I, think, I think this has Bombach handprints all over it. And then Greta Gerwig through the writing and just the viv that she brings as an actor brought a lot of life to yeah, it. Yeah, but then when, she, when you have Lady Bird and it's just, yeah, it's so like, please more Greta more <laughs> yeah she she really gives her movies a sense of emotional depth that this yeah. movie doesn't have yeah because like, this has intellectualized emotions more so but I think there's so many there's a glut there's not a lot of original thoughtful movies and I think Fran- Greta Francis Greta is such a unique voice that we just need to whatever we need to do just get her to make more movies yeah please and, and I, I can't wait to talk about and rewatch um little women 
because mm. I had probably one of the longest conversations in recent memory with Robin after we watched that movie. It was a really good conversation and we had so much to say about it. We didn't love all of it. We liked a lot of it. And I can't wait to talk about it with you just because it's it's got Greta Gerwig's style to it, but there's there's just so much to chew over. Mm. Um, especially, have you read the book? Oh yeah. Okay, cool. And uh, what I think we should do is maybe a companion piece yeah. where we watch Little Women and then the 1990s version and then we watch Little Women. There's also a the Catherine Ma- Hepburn version. I thought it was uh, the woman who played Scarlett O'Hara. There's also a um, Olivia de Havilland version. Is there a Olivia de Havilland version? Right. Let's fact ourselves. Fact check ourselves right now. Fact check. Let's see. Yep. There's a 1933 version with Katherine Hepburn, directed by George Cooker, who also directed Adam's Rib and The Philadelphia Story. Very nice. And... Elizabeth Taylor. Oh. That's who it was. Okay. And Janet Lee. Okay. Ooh, that would be fun. Yeah, I, but let's do the night. Let's do the two most recent ones. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Um, okay. Well, uh, I, yeah, I think that's it. We mm-hmm. talked this one to death, yeah. and it talked itself to death. Mm-hmm. Um, let's pick next week's movie. Okay. Okay. Hey, um, just since we were talking about love just a second ago, I want to wish my parents a happy anniversary. This is their thirty seventh, you know, anniversary. You guys are great. Thanks for being. You know, married so long and teach me so much about love. Hey. You guys are fantastic. You guys are great. Okay. We have kind of larger list today. We're expanding and expanding. Uh, so this is going to go on forever until we die. Good. 172. All right. You want me to pick a number? Yeah. 11. Do, 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 do. Booty call. <laughs> <laughs> Booty Call, which I've never seen, know nothing about, but I'm assuming it's uh, kind of sexy. All right. All right. If you want to check us out on the social medias, go ahead and uh, find us at Romcom Gents, either on Facebook or Instagram. Forget Twitter because we just don't do Twitter. And uh, where else can people reach us, Ryan? romcomgents at gmail.com very true and uh, feel free to rate and review us anywhere that you possibly can it would be a such a boon to us um and you know what kids take it take it sleazy out there take it sleazy who's sleazy you are you sexy one (laughs) just like lev i'm gonna be sleazy like lev you're gonna be sleazy like lev and he always has booty calls okay yeah okay uh love you i love you okay bye (laughs) bye And this is where we will say a goodbye. Ryan and Kelly must bid you adieu. Thank you for listening to our review. Rate and subscribe, we'll even take a bribe. So see you next week on the Gentleman's Guide to Romcoms. <laughs>